moral motivation. Where does it come from? Is, is moral motivation unique to the human animal or are there others? And it's really very clear at this point that moral motivation is part of what we are genetically equipped with. And that we share this with mammals in general and birds. That in the case of humans, probably our moral behavior is more complex. And that's probably just because we have a bigger brain. We have more neurons than, say, a chimpanzee, and many more neurons than a mouse or a rat. But we have all the same structures. It's not that there is a special structure for morality tucked in there. So part of what we want to know really has to do with the nature of the wiring that supports moral motivation. We know a little bit about it, namely that it involves important neurochemicals like oxytocin and vasopressin. And also it involves the hormones that have to do with pleasure, endocannabinoids and the endogenous opioids. So that's an important part of the story. The details are by and large missing. And what I would love to know, of course, is much more about the details. So that's the moral platform, if you like. And the moral platform really just provides the basic sort of impetus for sociality and hence for morality. But that moral platform has to be shaped and directed into very specific kinds of behavior. And for that, we know that the reward system is extremely important. Of course, knowing specific things, as well as knowing about norms and practices, are also important. How exactly they work together, so that you know that in this condition you should tell a lie, but not in that condition, uh, we don't understand at all well. So the decision-making of a mammal, especially a human mammal, once we they are mature enough to have an understanding of their, social, of their social world as well as their physical world. The nature of that decision making is under exploration in neuroscience, but there's so much we don't yet understand. What is neurophilosophy is a very good question, and certainly I'm asked that quite a lot. And the very fast answer is, it's that space between neuroscience and those big old traditional philosophical questions about the nature of consciousness, about how we learn and remember, about how perception guides our behavior, about how we might think to change the norms within the social group we live in. Um, so that's what neurophilosophy is. So then the question is, you know, what was I doing way back in, you know, the early 1980s? And the answer is that several amazing things happened actually in the 1970s in neurobiology that made me think that much of what philosophers were doing was kind of a waste of time. Now, one of the things that happened came out of Caltech, and these were the split-brain data. 
And what was important about the split brain data is this. From a philosophical point of view, there had been much argumentation and furrowing of brows over the unity of consciousness. The unity is an essential, necessary feature of consciousness, so the argument went. And yet, what happened was, in California, there were a, there were a number of patients who had intractable epilepsy, meaning that their epileptic seizures could not be controlled by drugs, and that consequently they had 30 to 40 to 50 seizures a day, and life was barely livable. The proposal was to split the hemispheres in hopes of diminishing the spread of a seizure from one hemisphere to the other. So this was done with several patients, and they seemed to recover well, they seemed quite normal, and then somebody began to test, this was really Roger Sperry at Caltech, began to test them very, very carefully. And he noticed a stunning thing. One hemisphere could know something, the other did not. One hemisphere could want something, the other did not. One hemisphere could be conscious of something, the other was not. And this was really an extraordinary thing to me at the time because it meant that not only was it not a necessary truth that consciousness is unified, but it turns out if you split the brain, you split the mind. And I thought that was an amazing thing. So basically what happened then was that I had the great good fortune to be in Winnipeg in Manitoba. And I wanted to understand as much as I could of what was known about the nature of the brain. But I ran into a problem. And the problem was that the brain is a three-dimensional structure. And I was looking at two-dimensional pictures. And I found the hippocampus on one page, but I couldn't for the life of me see where the heck it was on the other page. So I went down to the medical school one fall afternoon, and I went into the Department of Anatomy, and I said, look, you know, I have this problem. I really need to understand the anatomy of the brain. So the short story is the medical school welcomed me. They welcomed me by saying, take any of the courses that the medical students are taking that interest you. They gave me a whole human brain to dissect my very own dissection in a Tupperware pot. The clinicians asked me to come to uh, Grand Rounds so that I could see very specific patients who had kind of remarkable and amazing deficits as a result of stroke. And that completely changed how I thought about everything. Suddenly, bickering away about this little distinction and that little distinction in philosophy just didn't cut it anymore. Now I wanted to know, what is this thing? How does it work? How does it make me what I am? How does it support consciousness? What happens when I sleep? And so forth. And so I was consumed by the realization that making progress via science the great fortune of being in Winnipeg, first of all, had to do with the medical school being so welcoming. 
The second thing had to do with the fact that the philosophy department really didn't care what I did. They didn't put any pressure on me to publish. They didn't care if I ever published anything. They cared that I taught and that I taught well, but that was it. And if I organized myself carefully, it let me lots of time to do neuroscience. And I eventually became attached to a lab. And this was also an amazing piece of fortune. It was a lab that works on motor control. And I thought, gee, you know, I'd really rather be in a perception lab, but there was no good perception lab. So we did motor control, and that changed how I thought about cognition and how I thought about perception. Because one day, Rodolfo Linus, the great neuroscientist, came to visit. And I complained to him that, you know, I'd really rather be in a perception lab. And he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. That we will not understand cognition or the nature of representation and perceptual systems unless we understand how it interfaces with motor control. Everything is ultimately in the pay of motor control. So that changed how I thought about perception and it changed how I thought about the evolution of the brain. And so Rodolfo Linus was a huge, huge effect. Uh, his ideas were a huge effect on how I thought about things. So, so although the, the, the time in Winnipeg was amazing and seeing human patients and seeing what they could and couldn't do was really insightful, um, we did not have anything like a brain scan. And we used, we had x-rays and, and there were post-mortem dissections of brain. But when the first PET scans came online, and this, they came out of Sweden, I remember thinking, this is the hoped for thing. This is a technique that at long last, we're going to be able to see where a lesion is. We're going to be able to make strong correlations between lesions and behavior. And of course, then, eventually, the uh, PET scans gave rise to uh, magnetic resonance imaging, and then that we found a way of using that to look at activity in the brain. And now, of course, it's very normal for people to say, well, you know, we put so-and-so in the scanner, and we showed them a picture, and this part of their brain lit up. And then the change over those 50 years that was made possible by scanning was absolutely tremendous. But that was only part of it. Many other techniques came online as well, techniques at every level, including the cellular level, that suddenly opened up things at every level from cells to systems to the whole brain. And neuroscience had suddenly become this tremendous wave that we were all trying to catch. And, and now, of course, there are still techniques that we desperately need and that will come so that we can eventually, I think, be able to really address the nature of what it is to be conscious and how the brain supports consciousness by using these techniques. We will have to wait.
So Mike Gazanaga, of course, was part of Sperry's lab at the time. And Mike really saw how absolutely important these split-brain studies were. And he then was at Dartmouth, where there was another set of patients. And much further and more developed work was done with split-brain patients. And Mike had a huge, huge impact on me because Mike was not just interested in collecting fascinating data, but he really saw the big questions. He knew <laughs> that this was going to have a lot to do uh, with the nature of how we understood the mind itself. Now, I should tell you that the other astonishing discovery in the 70s that we are still working through had to do with the, the surgical subject HM. And HM had, uh, again, it was an epilepsy story. He had intractable epilepsy. And in his case, the suggestion was that the hippocampal structures on both sides be removed. And that was done. And indeed, his epilepsy seemed cured. But the problem was that now Henry could not learn anything new. He had a 30-second range of memory. If he was interrupted or distracted, you'd have to explain it to him all over again. He, every day when the doctor came in, he was surprised. He had to be reintroduced to him. And so we knew that there was something very special about hippocampal structures and memory for events and episodes and facts. And, and this was, I think, really unexpected, that it was separate from other structures that had to do with learning skills, learning routines. And so HM was able to learn a skill, but he couldn't actually remember having learned it. And this also, like the split brain, um, data set in motion a huge research enterprise into the nature of learning and memory. And for one of the first times ever, I think we asked, how many learning systems are there? How many different mechanisms are there for learning things? How is recall ever possible? And notice we still have not answered that question. How is recall? When I ask you, do you remember your first kiss? I'm betting that within 100 milliseconds, you do. How the heck is that possible? We don't know. Um, and so when David Chalmers you know, talks about the hard problem, I'd sort of like to say, you know, there's many hard problems about the brain. But in any case, the work the, the research that came out of this initial discovery, tragic though it was, about the nature of the hippocampus as essential in some way for learning new things and for learning about events and episodes, um, that changed neuroscience profoundly. Sometimes when people ask me, do you think there might be a soul that survives our bodily death? I said, well, look, 
You need the hippocampus to learn anything new. Now, when your brain dies, your hippocampus goes to. It is done. So what's your soul going to have for information? What's it going to use for information? How is it going to learn anything? Um, so I think it did profoundly change how we thought. Now, this work on HM was also related to something else that was profound. And that was a patient of the Damasios who was very like HM, except worse. This patient, his name was Boswell, and Boswell not only couldn't learn anything new, but he had lost essentially all autobiographical memory. Boswell knew he was born in Iowa, but that was it. So when I asked Boswell, I said, so, so were you ever married, Roger? And he said, well, you know, it's hard to say. And, but notice how he responds, right? He's gracious, he's trying, he knows in a certain sense that he doesn't know. This is a man with no autobiographical memory, but nevertheless, with a capacity to use his social skills. And he is still, you know, you wouldn't know for the first three minutes of having met him that there was anything wrong. And for me as a philosopher, this was an incredible result. And I'll tell you why. Because in the 18th century, John Locke had the idea, which was not a bad idea, that our self, our sense of self, our very selfness itself, depends on autobiographical memory. And without autobiographical memory, we wouldn't have a self. And most philosophers thought, A, that Locke was right, and B, that autobiographical memory was a necessary condition for having a sense of self. And I said, but wait, here's Boswell. He clearly has a sense of himself. He's introduced to me, he shakes his, my hand, he asks me where I'm from and how do I like the weather. He has a sense of self, albeit a diminished sense of self, because he doesn't know that he was married. He can't recognize himself in a picture. He can't recognize his children in a picture. Um, but he doesn't lack all sense of self. And basically, the philosophers ignored me. They wanted nothing to do with me. I did start as a philosopher, I know, in a kind of crazy way. Um, because when I was an undergraduate, we did study Aristotle and Hume and Descartes and so forth. And these guys actually were trying to understand phenomena. They weren't just playing around. But by the time I got to graduate school, it was quite clear that people who were doing what they called philosophy of mind were no longer interested in the phenomena. They were interested in words. What do certain words really mean? What does the word knowledge really mean? And Hume wasn't interested in that so much as how is it that we know anything? So by the time I was well into graduate school, I had begun to sour because I thought, you know, 
it's all very well to talk about what words really mean and to kind of get clear about that. But then ultimately what you want to know is about the phenomenon itself. So I, I think I was a bad graduate student because I didn't want to play that game. So by the time I was an assistant professor in Winnipeg, Manitoba, I was really ready to kind of kick over the traces. How is philosophy different from science? It's such a great question. And the first time I really felt like I had an insight to that question came when I was a graduate student at Pittsburgh. And I read Willard Van Orman Quine. And Quine said, philosophy and science are continuous. That philosophers may be asking questions where we can't yet get data. But when we can get data, those questions will be considered scientific questions. Now, there may be some parts of philosophy, such as aesthetics, for all I know, where, where there is a, it's not related to science. But philosophy of mind, how we, how we work, what it is to have an unconscious, what it is to think, how perception and thinking and motor control integrate. Those are questions you can't answer by sitting in an armchair and dreaming up thought experiments. It just ain't like that. So what happened in the early 80s was one of these great grand chance events. I was asked to give a talk at Johns Hopkins. And I knew that, because I had read in Nature, that there was this computational neuroscience guy at Johns Hopkins called Terry Sanofsky. And I thought, hey, I'll accept this invitation because I've got to meet this guy and figure out what he knows. So off I went, and yes, indeed, I met Terry. But the other thing that happened was that Francis Crick was also there. And Francis also gave a talk. And after I gave my talk, which was basically, we need to understand the brain in order to understand the mind, he was clearly very taken aback. He said, I've been waiting for years for philosophers to say this. Uh, and he was so excited by the idea that a philosopher was really going to go at it to answer questions about the nature of ourselves. And so we had hours of conversation, Francis and I. And after that, basically, he organized things so that Paul and I ended up moving to San Diego. And it was a wonderful thing. I mean, San Diego had been kind of like mecca of neuroscience for me, because there was Ted Bullock, who had done comparative neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. And he was just one of the great, great archbishops of science. And um, there was Al Selverston, who had done the very first model of a piece of behavior where we knew the wiring. And, uh, and there were many, many other people. So we moved to San Diego. Larry Squire was working on declarative memory in HM. Uh, and, and it really was like I was in heaven. It was, uh, and it still is. I love San Diego. I love the community. People have a wonderful kind of cooperative. They don't really care whether they're at the Sulk or Scripps or where the heck they are. We just get along and collaborate and do a bit of this and maybe some of that. And 
it's the kind of community that I always dreamed might exist, and it actually does. So getting to San Diego was wonderful. And of course, the first thing Francis did was arrange for me to be an adjunct professor at the Salk Institute. That was great. And then one day, uh, we had lunch, and he said, now, we have to get that Nansenovsky here. He said, he is going to be the kind of person who's going to lead in getting real theoretical insight into the nature of nervous, the nervous system. So we went to work on it. And uh, lo and behold, uh, Terry got an offer from the SALT that he couldn't refuse, and he moved to the SALT. And so that was a really big thing. And then. He had tea every afternoon about 3.30, and Francis always came for tea, and his postdocs came for tea. And it was like the most lively, outrageous, no-holds-barred philosophy seminar I'd ever been in. Someday, some graduate student will, would say, well, what the heck is an explanation anyway? And off we'd go. And Francis, of course, participated in those things, because he loved that kind of rough and tumble. And um, every day was like that, often a new question, or somebody would have some really interesting, amazing new data, like Reed Montague. And we think, well, holy cow, how do you explain that? And um, so, so those first, oh, I don't know, decade or so of being at the Salk while teaching on the main campus, that was wonderful. And Francis, you know, I mean, talking to Francis about the history of science, he didn't just know about the history of microbiology, of course, um, but he knew how to put it in the context of a much longer, longer view of the history of science. But it was really wonderful to talk to him about the, uh, the history of molecular biology. And, and what it was like at the time before they knew there was two kinds of RNA. There was messenger RNA and transfer RNA. But there was a time when they just knew there was RNA and these guys got these weird results and these guys got these weird results. And Francis said, so we decided to do the intelligent thing. And this was sort of Sidney Brenner involved. He said, we brought everybody together and said, we have to solve this. And they did. They suddenly realized, I think it was Sidney Brenner, wait, maybe there's two kinds of RNA. And let's call it messenger and transfer. And suddenly that hypothesis meant you could explain all of the disparities. What a cool thing. Yeah, so I came to know Jim Watson um, partly through Francis, because Jim would come to California from time to time. And then on one occasion, Jim asked me to come to give a talk at Cold Spring Harbor, which, uh, which I did. But um, of course, I didn't know him anything like as well as I knew Francis. But also, I think he was very interested in many detailed questions of molecular biology. And Francis had kind of shifted. I mean, as he was fond of saying, I don't really go to molecular biology talks anymore because I can't follow them. <laughs> and what he meant was, you know, there had been so much progress. And the thing was, but he couldn't follow them because he was spending his time learning about the brain. And that was, of course, what he and Terry and I had in common. So I knew when I was in Manitoba that I had a book in me. 
I knew that I had a book about the relation between neuroscience and philosophy, and that it couldn't be just a bang-off short book, but that I had to be able to really explain at least enough of the history of philosophy and enough of the history of neuroscience to see why now is a propitious time for these to come together. And it wasn't quite finished when we had moved to San Diego. And I will say, Francis was a tremendous help in pushing me along. And I would tell him, I'd say, well, you know, the philosophers really hate this part of it. And he'd say, oh, don't worry about them. <laughs> and then eventually, in 1986, the book came out. And, uh, and he was tremendously supportive. The book got a very bad review from Gunter Stent, who worked on the leech. And uh, it was in nature. And of course, I was heartbroken. I was you know, not mature enough to realize it didn't matter. And Francis said, oh, no, no, it doesn't matter. And I said, well, don't you think I should respond? And he said, oh, absolutely not. Say nothing. And of course, he was right. It didn't matter. Um, so it was very helpful um, to get advice from him. I mean, he was a very practical person. He often doesn't seem like that because, you know, he would have these very rich, insightful, far-seeing ideas. He was a very practical person. The impact of my idea uh, that there should be a kind of neural philosophy, the impact is a little hard to assess, but I'll give you one index of that. Many students, when the book came out, who were in philosophy and had thought philosophy would help them understand the nature of the mind, changed and went into neuroscience. There's never a talk that I have given anywhere in the world where I haven't had faculty and postdocs and others come up and say, you know, I have to tell you, I quit philosophy because I read neural philosophy. So part of what happened then was, and I think it probably would have happened anyway, but was that people could see that neuroscience was where the action is. It's not in analyzing words and making things clear. It's where the action is. And graduate students and postdocs from physics, from biology, from math, went in in droves. And Part of the impact, too, I think, was that they could, as a result of the, the neurophilosophical approach, they could see, if not in detail, at least in outline, the links between brain and mind. That thinking is just a function of the brain, and that someday we'll understand what that really is. So, so I. But what I didn't have, um, apart from maybe one or, one or two people within philosophy, I didn't have people who suddenly said, oh my god, yeah, neurophilosophy is the way to go. Uh, I, one person tried to start a journal called Neurophilosophy to, be, uh, to come out of M MIT, and MIT was very keen on the idea. And some well-placed, distinguished philosopher, who I don't know who it was, said, no, no, this will be too associated with Pat Churchill. We can't have that. 
the philosophers were very mean-spirited about many of these things. And I had one very distinguished philosopher tell me I had no right to the word neural philosophy. Well, I mean, like, whose word is it anyways? I mean, you know, it's nobody's word. John Bickle was one graduate student from North Carolina who really picked up on it and now does work uh, with Alcino Silver, who's a neuroscientist. And there were others as well who, who did. Um, but we can now see the old guard is still doing good old-fashioned word meaning analysis. The younger people are interested in the overlap. They want to know how neuroscience is affecting how we really understand the nature of thought, the nature of having a self, the nature of making decisions. Mike Zanica said to me one day, you know, I see there's so many philosophers doing history of philosophy. They're doing Hegel and Fichte and Nietzsche and Plato. But do you think that if Aristotle were alive today, he'd be reading Aristotle? Which was a funny way to ask a very interesting question. And I had to say, no. Aristotle would be doing today kind of what he was doing then, and that is trying to find things out. Trying to find out how things work. How many teeth do we have? Are baboons similar to chimpanzees? Uh, what does the heart really do? These were things he was really interested in. Of course, he didn't always get the right answers, needless to say. If he were alive right now, he'd be working on the brain. So, so although we have made tremendous progress in understanding many details of the brain, there are huge gaps in our knowledge. And what's relevant to me, as somebody who's interested in the nature of moral behavior, is how little we really understand anywhere about the nature of reasoning, or if I may use a different expression, problem solving. I don't know what reasoning is. For a long time, people seemed to think it was completely separate from emotion, but we know that can't be true. So the nature of problem solving is something that is still very much in the pioneering stages in neuroscience. And it's a place where neuroscience and psychology can really cooperate to get interesting experimental paradigms so that we can then attack the question of what it is, how is it that out of all of these constraints and factors, a good decision, a reasonable decision, can actually get made. So that's a tough one. It will require us to find good experimental paradigms and probably new techniques. There are, of course, psychologists who address these questions about problem solving. And in, in my own sort of deep-seated skeptical way, I'm always out there kicking the tires. And I guess, although there are many things about Danny Kahneman's approach that I find very appealing, on the other hand, this idea that there are these two systems and one uses logic and the other one doesn't, and one is automatic and the other one is, you know, from the point of view of neuroscience, it doesn't really add 
partly because there are many actions that we do very quickly if we have the right skills that are extremely intelligent. Think of a quarterback in football. Think of a hockey player. Think of a neurosurgeon. Think of an eye surgeon who does it very fast. Automatic? Well, no, not exactly, because if something weird happens, he's responsive. But, you know, this dichotomy is okay kind of as a first pass, but it doesn't, as we might say, pass muster. It, it, it's not going to work. Now, Gigerenzer has ideas about heuristics that I find also kind of appealing in many ways, that we need to find ways of testing neurobiologically, whether certain, like fast and dirty, for example. Can we find in the nervous system of a rodent evidence that that is a heuristic, that is a kind of you know, rule of thumb that other things being equal, the rodent uses? I think it's quite possible that we'll find some evidence for it, but, um, but that remains to be seen. So as a neurophilosopher, I think the question of consciousness is quite interesting. And the way I've always thought about this is, is quite sort of practical. And that is, let's start where we can get some traction. We want to know the difference between a brain that's awake and a brain that's in deep sleep. We want to know the difference between a brain that is in coma and a brain that is awake and functioning or a brain that is anesthetized and one that isn't. We want to know the difference between paying attention to something and not. Now, this is a first pass. This is a way to get into the problem and to begin to find out what the circuitry is that supports awareness. Because there's no doubt that there is a difference between being in coma and being awake. Um, and there are some data relevant to all of those questions. There are data relevant to sleep and dreaming, for example. Stan DeHane has lovely stuff. Tononi has lovely stuff. It's small. It's a small baby step forward, but it's a beginning. Um, Nick Franks has important data on what happens under anesthesia. And it, what looks like is that the inhibitory cells are, are upregulated and the excitatory cells are downregulated. But what you want to know then is, okay, so why does that lead to conscious disappearance? Why do we go then under, under, uh, under anesthesia? Um, there are data concerning the nature of attention, both sort of top-down attention and bottom-up attention. Like when, when a dog suddenly barks and I turn, that's one kind of attention. Or when I begin to think about uh, how to get from your study to, or your office to Columbia, that's a different kind of attention. So we have bits and pieces of all that. Now, what some people say is, yeah, but you'll never get the answer. How do they know that? It's like my old biology teacher on the farm saying, we'll never understand the nature of life. 
because living molecules are different from dead molecules. And you'll never, really, like, <laughs> never is a quite a long time, especially when you've got really smart postdocs and graduate students. So uh, you can say we don't understand it now, but why say we'll never understand? And the answer really is because for a certain subset of philosophers, it's very self-serving. It allows them to say, but I can tell you about the necessary features of consciousness, because that's what philosophers do. And I want to say, oh gosh, <laughs> really? So the answers will come, just as they did with DNA. Uh, the answers will come. Um, and, and saying, well, they aren't here now, so they'll never come, is, is well, not exactly rational. 